great friend, Mr. Al Bat. Al, how are things over in Heartland, Minnesota? Uh, soupy, I guess, would oh. be the right way to put yeah. it. It is wet. So we got, uh, oh, I think we got six tenths on Sunday, and we probably got two inches. There was an inch and eight tenths, but it's wow. rained some since then, so today. So uh, yeah, it's it's wet. Uh, it just, uh, but it, I, we've been so fortunate. I guess we haven't uh, missed a rain this year. Some people would say unfortunate, but that that doesn't do any good. You might as well say boy, we were just lucky to get all that rain because it. Uh, we've already got it. We can't give it back. So it's it's one of those uh, one of those things. Uh, weather's weather and. You know, we can complain all we want. Weather really doesn't care what we say. It's just going to do its thing anyway. So maybe a lesson for all of us. I, I do want to thank everybody who uh, was at the Preston Library, uh, the Freeborn County Township Officers Association, and on the Pelican Breeze. I enjoyed uh, being able to, to speak to all you. And we took a wonderful trip down in uh, like a one-mile hike in, down into Niagara Cave by Harmony, my wife and I. And Aaron and Amy uh, Bishop were our guides, and they were just wonderful. Went down there 200 feet below the surface and uh, saw 60-foot waterfalls. Hence the name Niagara Cave. It was named after Niagara Falls. And it was 48 degrees. So no just matter like where it's we gonna, went in there, it was 48 degrees. I was going to say, just like it's going to be here now in the next few days, 48. So we're going to get down to the cool temps, just yeah, like the cave. That's right, yeah. And for guys like me, it's that time when you try to find some kind of a coat where you, <laughs> where you put it last. So it's, you know, we just don't like coats very much, some of us. We, that Niagara Cave, uh, one last thing about that, it was uh, discovered in 1924 when a farmer was missing three pigs and they had walked along and they'd fallen in a sinkhole 75 feet down and apparently they were okay so they're lowering things down to tie the pigs up so they can pull them back up and then they discovered this long long cave in there and the rest as they say is history in 1934 it was made into a a tour stop, so and it's a, a great place. I highly recommend it. I my dragonflies are pretty much gone. I miss the dragonflies. They're one of those things that kind of disappear. I'm seeing some uh, hawks out there, little meadow hawks or autumn hawks probably, and uh, the small dragonflies. But the, I had a yard full of these incredible flying machines that catch insect prey by grabbing it with their feet. And these were large dragonflies, three inches long called green darners that were cruising about my yard. Some green darners migrate on these two-inch wings. They're one of our most abundant dragonflies. And there was research published in, oh, I don't know what year it was. I wish I could remember. I should have looked it up, but biology letters. And it found that in early spring, the first generations exit the shelter of their southern ponds, and they fly north an average of 400 miles, and they lay eggs and die. The second generation hatches in the north, and by the end of September has flown south where they lay eggs and die. Uh, the next generation winters in southern U.S., Mexico, and the Caribbean. So it takes at least three generations to make up the annual migration, at least three. 
Uh, the crows in the yard, oh, I like to report on them because they're just interesting. They've always got something going on. They were particularly chatty this morning, even though with the rain. They were doing a color commentary on the yard, and they called hawk, and they were correct. When it comes to knowing things a crow should know, they are knowledgeable, and they chased up a cooper's hawk. Yeah. Before you go on, I wanted to say, my son was yeah. talking about something about crows, saying you can train crows to do things, and give them directions and they'll follow that. Is that true? Uh, one did all my homework all the way through high school. So <laughs> No, he was serious. He would do a lot. Uh, are they smart, though? He's, he he's wasn't a... very good at English. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> can they do tricks and things, though, if you train no, them or not? Yeah, they sure can. And I remember going to a state park when I was a kid, and one of the guys who was the Oh, one of the guys, the manager, caretaker, I'm not sure exactly what his position was there, assistant manager, was of some authority. And he had a crow that he had tamed, and it would say a few words, and he could holler, uh, oh, I can't remember what he was feeding, it, peanuts or something. And he would holler peanuts, and the crow would come over. Yeah, they're very, very smart, and some of the crows in New Guinea have been New Guinea crows, have, are capable of fashioning primitive tools. Wow. And they will find a grub in a hole, so they will find a thorn and poke it in there. And when the, when they've had them in studies, they've given them a piece of wire. And sometimes the grub is down lower, so the crows will bend the wire so it goes down, and then like a fish hook gets the grub out of there. So crows are very, very intelligent. They are certainly one of the class valedictorians, along with the ravens of the crows in Minnesota's world here, bird world. So, yeah, your son is very correct, and you should get a crow, I think. Uh, (laughs) It'd keep your cats entertained. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Tom... Tom Bovers of Fairbone Dan Rubel of Albert Lee reported large numbers of broadwing hawks heading south to their wintering grounds. Uh, they winter in southern, central, and northern, northern South America, probably. Broadwing hawks form kettles. They, they circle on these warm air thermals. And when you look up, it resembles steam spiraling up from a kettle, and hence the name kettle. And broadwing hawks, they can form kettles of hundreds to thousands of birds. And I mentioned, I've mentioned Hawk Ridge about every week here recently, but it's just because it's the time of Hawk Ridge, because most raptors are reluctant to cross large bodies of water. So when they migrate south and they encounter Lake Superior, they go, oofta, they're not <laughs> going to cross that. So they veer southwest along the lake shore. And they concentrate in impressive numbers on the bluffs overlooking Duluth. And they can be seen from the overlook at Hawk Ridge. On days with northwesterly winds, impressive numbers of birds can be seen migrating past the ridge. Westerly winds produce large numbers of migrating hawks. Uh, Southerly or easterly breezes don't generally produce large flights of raptors, but the birds are often lower and easier to see. And the record number of broadwing hawks seen there, this is in one day, 101,698. And that was on September 15th, 2003. And I will mention it again, 101,698 broadwing hawks seen in one day at Hawk Ridge. I brought up, uh, incidentally, I brought up Saddleback Caterpillar last week. 
And I had to look something up on that because I've seen them, and I know they sting like the Dickens, but I wasn't all that familiar as to where their range was. Uh, this The Saddleback Caterpillar has many spines, and they're capable of delivering a sting that uh, people won't soon forget. It has hollow quills. They're connected to poison glands beneath the skin. And the pain and swelling from contact with them can rival or surpass that of a bee sting. The eastern half of the United States, from Massachusetts to Wisconsin, and south to Florida and east to Texas into Mexico. I have, I did find one map that showed that they were in the southeast corner of Minnesota. I've never seen them in Minnesota, and other maps said they were only in Wisconsin. It's a inch-long larval form of a fuzzy, dark brown moth. In the crawling stage, its coloration is vivid. In the center of its bright green saddle is a purplish-brown circle. And this critter, again, can be found in the eastern U.S., mostly on deciduous trees and shrubs, as well as corn and grasses in midsummer to early fall. But uh, I don't think we have them around here. But, you know, every time you say, I don't think, and, and you're really not thinking when you say that. <laughs> Uh, Cindy Wesley said, Hi, Al. I'm writing from Wells, Minnesota. This morning I was hanging my sheets on the line. Well, it wouldn't have been this morning, I bet. So when I spotted a few large birds, then several more, above our neighborhood. In total, there were about 30. They were circling high up, gliding, veeing, if there is such a word, solely above. The birds appeared to be about the size of a Canada goose. They were very white with black-tipped wings. My first thought is perhaps they were pelicans, but on the Internet I saw a picture of snow geese flying, and it sure looked like what I saw. Could these birds be snow geese? Are they migrating? What were they looking for in the metro area of Wells? Well, uh, um, thanks for your help. What a beautiful day to hang out laundry and have the serendipitous sighting of an unknown bird. Uh, Cindy, it's great to hear from you. Uh, snow geese migrate from mid-September to late December. Uh, usually, boy, when they f- when I see them, they are noisy, just really noisy, because they're geese, and they can fly in a V formation, or they can fly in a oh, I don't know what the a big goose snowstorm. They just <laughs> scatter all over. Pelicans migrate from late August to mid-November. I would think, and again, uh, you know, I'm. Pre- fully prepared to be rock. It sounds like your birds are pelicans because snow geese flap their wings constantly instead of soaring as pelicans do. And you mentioned that these guys were soaring. So I'm going to say pelicans, Cindy. And what are they doing in wells? Well, why wouldn't they want to be in wells? Uh, for the most part, they're just trying to get somewhere, uh, find some water, and maybe they want to stop somewhere and find something to eat as well. And the pelicans would uh, land on Minnesota Lake, uh, very possibly, and find something to eat there if they were headed that right direction. Uh, Mary Gugisberg. Mary is from Freeborn. She saw some double-crested cormorants and uh, just amazed to get a good look at them, how they look. Uh, Double-crested cormorants are large water birds. They have small heads, uh, long kinked necks. They have thin, strong, hooked bills, roughly the length of the head. And their heavy bodies sit low in the water like a loon. 
and they have orange yellow skin around the bill and the chin the base of the bill and the chin so they're um they're prehistoric looking i guess would be the right way for me to put that i have had a kid that's been on the boat with me and calls them pterodactyls because <laughs> they kind of look like pterodactyls i guess uh, Rhonda Jordahl, who lives in Albert Lee Lake, she said, so many great egrets this year. And, yeah, it's really cool to see the great egrets. They are the symbol of the National Audubon Society. And were once a bird that was just hunted uh, just madly by people because they used them in the women's hat trade, the big plumes and everything from these wonderful birds when they were in breeding plumage. And again, uh, somebody wrote about a lady walking down the streets of New York City, Manhattan, I believe. She had parts of 42 birds in her hat. Oh and today God. that makes us all shudder. But back in those days, it was that was the height of fashion right there. Wow. And I, I wondered if she was able to identify any of them. Or when you <laughs> bought the hat, did you get a list of what was on your hat? Yeah. I, probably not. You just looked at a hat and say, boy, that that's what I like there. And uh, so that's what she had. Uh, Larry and Emily Otto, they are from Allendale, uh, said, Al, we are wondering if we should still be putting out nectar for hummingbirds and their fine feathered friends. Thanks for your expertise. Well, thank you, Larry and Em. Uh, leave them up a week or two after you've seen the last hummingbird. It, you know, if it's a problem, you got some other things to do, take them down if you have to. But I, that way you're feeding any stragglers that might come through. Because everybody's gone through, and you know how that is. Here comes the last guy, and he's going, hey, guys, <laughs> wait up, wait up. Uh, theirs is an amazing journey. Things happen. I know somebody told me they... Um, they came home after being gone for the weekend. Here was a hummingbird in their garage. They're attracted by those uh, garage door handles that you use to pull up and pull the garage door down. They're usually red. So oh. a hummingbird sometimes will see that and think, wow, there's a, a red flower, pretty tall one, so I bet that's full of nectar. <laughs> and it went in there, and then they, sh they shut the door, oh, and they no. came home, and luckily it was still alive. I don't know what it found to eat in there because their metabolism rate is is just so mad it must have found maybe some small insects or something in there that it could eat because they opened it up and it went out but this guy's migrating so now he's two days behind so those are how we get stragglers i think sometimes things stuff happens um bob nyman sent me uh, four photos um of red-tailed hawks and Cooper Hawks, and Bob is from Albert Lee. Steve Silvera brought me a box, and he opened it up, and there's a, uh, he got him, he, he corresponded with a Lafayette College professor in entomology. So he's got this uh, male cicada killer wasp on a pin, then he's got a female cicada killer wasp on a pin, and then Steve found this giant cicada killer wasp on a pen. It's a female, but it's quite a bit larger than uh, than the other female in there. So ge genetic um, differences there, but it was cool seeing them. Uh, Casey Tufty, and 
Casey sent me a photo of a red-tailed hawk on the ground that had caught a squirrel and then flew off with a squirrel. And she was wondering about identification on it. And the hawk was white on the front, kind of blotchy brown on the back, and it had a dark belly band. And those are all diagnostic of a uh, red-tailed hawk. Um, some of the, those uh, there's so many variations in red-tailed hawks, so to say those are diagnostic, I guess, is kind of presumptuous in some ways, but that is one of the ways you can identify them. Uh, Roy Zimmerman saw a black-billed cuckoo, a common gallinule, and a lark sparrow in Nicollet County. Bob Williams found a red-shouldered hawk in Nicollet County. Pete Holger had a yellow-billed cuckoo at Carleton College Cowling Arboretum. Oh, that's a beautiful place. I like visiting there. Someone asked, how long does a chipmunk live? We have a lot of uh, pear, these little yellow pear tomatoes and cherry tomatoes. They're mm-hmm. really great in salads. And the yellow pears plant themselves, and apparently they're pretty resistant to blight or any tomato diseases because they just keep coming back in kind of the same areas and I pick them and I'm happy for their company. The little chipmunks will grab them. They like them Mm -hmm. and they run them up to the deck and they sit on the top step and they eat the insides out and then they just leave the empties there like they would like us to refill them for them. It's like an empty milk bottle or something. So these little guys, chipmunks, what we have here are eastern chipmunks. Uh, Most do not survive two years. There are just so many predators of chipmunks out there. But some could live eight, maybe even nine years in the wild. So that would be, I would think they would be a little bit uh, frizzled, maybe hoary looking so they'd have kind of a a grizzled look uh, the look of winter by the time they get to that age Uh, the same person asked do any butterflies overwinter as adults in minnesota Uh, they sure do Uh, morning cloak is typically the first butterfly i see each year Uh, comes out on uh, the end of winter usually um kind of a a warm sunny day you'll see them out floating around so they do overwinter as adults as do does eastern comma gray comma compton tortoiseshell and milbert's tortoiseshell and i know red admirals a lot of people say they overwinter as adults and then other scientists say no they don't so um i guess red admiral could be on that list or not See, Al. What tree is the tallest? Oh, Al, before yeah. you go on, I wanted to ask you, is this the time of year where frogs are on the the road to commit suicide? I was coming home from the lake house last night, and it's the time of year when I swear everywhere you go, because, of course, uh, the lake house is by a lake, and there's, you know, a lot of water around, but they're crossing the road everywhere in the headlights because it was dark, and they are just, uh, you know, I'm sure I... I'm sure I ran over some, but I didn't mean to. But it seems like this is the time of year that that happens. It, it certainly is. And this is the time of year for uh, we're going into the fall shuffle. So this means that 
everything will be looking for a place to winter up, and frogs are certainly in that number. Seen a lot of leopard frogs, and of course the yard is still full of toads of all sizes, which makes it uh, really difficult to mow, at least for guys like me. I just uh, I have to look out, to look all around, <laughs> hope there's no toad there before I can mow a blade of grass. But it is the time of fall shuffle, so we'll have a lot of creatures moving around and just looking for that perfect spot. I picture frog uh, realtors out there saying, uh, giving all the benefits of living in this, this water here. So, yeah, they sure are. And, uh, you know, I hit butterflies, and I feel guilty about that, but how do you miss them? You know, reasonably, I guess, uh, just um, not leave the house, probably. And even by not leaving the house, I'm probably doing some of them in. Somehow they're flying into, flying in something in the garage and can't get out. But So, yeah, it sure is, Karen. I've got another uh, question before you go on. Oh, I was going to ask sure. you a question first about raccoons. Uh, I've got a pear tree, and I think the raccoons love pears. Is that the case? Because on my deck, there are a lot of, or there is a lot of evidence. I'm pretty sure it's raccoon poop. All they they deposited all in front of the, on the deck in front of the door um, of the sun porch. It's just like giant piles of uh, poop, and every now and again, and I'm pretty sure it's raccoons. Would they do that? They sure will, and raccoons have, uh, oh, when I went to Heartland, the grade school in Heartland, we had the laboratory, the men's laboratory, and the and the girls' laboratory, boys' and girls' laboratory, They and uh, that's what raccoons have, so they will just return to these same places, and it, it's like a communal public restroom uh-huh. for them, so you will get these... Uh, great piles, uh, yes. thanks to those raccoons. And as far as eating, they will eat just about anything. Uh, they they have preferences. They like peanuts, sweets, bread, peanut butter, cat and dog food, and fruits, which would certainly include pears. They, but they, they love eating pears. They literally have to climb up the steps on the deck and be on the deck, which is, you know, uh, above the ground, I don't know, 8, 10 feet or whatever. And so they're going up there, obviously climbing the steps. It must be at night because I never see them, but I just know there's these giant piles, and it's right outside the door, so when you open it, it steps in it. So I don't know if they planned to do that or if it's just some reason they think that that's a good spot to um, use their laboratory, as you say. Yeah. They uh, do not, um, oh, you know, they don't give up. Raccoons figure things out. They're really good. I know I talked to somebody, and I, I don't remember who it was, years ago that they were trying to keep the raccoons out of a pear tree and was just having uh, all kinds of, because they were just ruining the pear tree. And they put bird netting around it, and that kind of helped. But, you know, that's a job, too, putting up that Mm -hmm. bird netting and getting it down. And Raccoons apparently don't like getting tangled in the netting. Go figure. Uh, So they will do that. Uh, Electric fencing around the area where the pear trees are growing, it can discourage them, but, boy, I don't know. You know, you'd have to put it, what, six inches from the ground maybe to in order to get them. So, yeah, they like pears, and they're just really good at getting pears. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they can climb, as we learned by that uh, young female up in the Twin Cities that climbed story after story <laughs> without without stopping to go... <laughs> 
<laughs> it just kept going. Uh, they are incredible beasts, and sometimes they they drive me crazy. But you know, every time I say something on the radio about raccoons, uh, a kind listener says, will send me an email saying, "I thought you might be interested in this," and it'll show either them or a friend's backyard up north somewhere where there's a bear. Um, sniffing at the feeders and things so yeah it could be a lot worse but you know we um we fight with who we have handy so it's raccoons and and the raccoons are winning they're just really good except on the roads they're not doing real well on the roads just think how many raccoons we'd have if they were if they could dodge every car we'd just be overrun with them and well we might be already uh what tree is the tallest uh Boy, I looked this up because I had no idea how many species of trees there are in the world. I knew which one was the tallest, but there are 60,065 species of trees in the world, and the tallest are the redwoods in California. One is 379.7 feet tall, almost 400 feet tall. That's incredible. So you, you think of a football field, it'd be beyond that. Uh, things that are happening that uh, you could take a uh, keep an eye out for. Uh, wild grape and hackberry leaves are turning this sunny yellow color. Uh, muskrats build dome-shaped houses from vegetation in marshes and ponds. Woodchucks carry dried leaves into their underground dens in preparation for hibernation, so they're making a bed in there. Uh, beavers are cutting down trees for winter food. Cedar waxwings and American robins are feeding on crab apples. And we should be seeing rafts of American coots or mud hens on some of the lakes. Uh, chimney swifts would be another one. They migrate through. The flying cigars are headed to South America. And this morning I saw a cardinal, a young male cardinal. He looks blotchy. I guess would be the best way. He has brown feathers, he has red feathers, and he has something in between. A northern cardinal has brown feathers and a dark beak when it leaves the nest. Almost black, brownish beak. And it's called a pre-basic molt, by which birds replace all feathers, and this usually occurs annually after the breeding season. And this pre-basic molt produces an adult plumage, so that's when a young cardinal might have a blotchy coloration because he replaces the feathers a little bit at a time because he can't afford to become flightless. So it, this is a time of year where you see a lot of these beautiful birds. We'll have goldfinches going through this. Uh, most all our birds will replace all their feathers at least once a year. Just to, If they have bad feathers, they're not going to do very well in life. Somebody asked, I'd like to see a vulture up close. How can I do that? Well, first roll on a dead raccoon, and then uh, when you see a turkey vulture flying overhead, go limp, I guess would be the easiest way. Other than that, there are some. I wonder if the Raptor Center doesn't have one. Uh, So there are a number of uh, birdie places, raptor centers, and rehab places that will have a vulture That'd be the way you could get up the closest. Otherwise, a lot of our parks and things where they will be in the morning and they do a heraldic pose by spreading their wings out to dry their wings from the wetness of the night and knock off any parasites they might have on there. You can get fairly close to them when they're doing that.
and I, I hope you're able to find a turkey vulture somewhere. I think they're exquisite birds, and I just love seeing them. With that, Karen, I hope you and everyone else will come to the, uh, the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always the Heimlich Maneuver, and gravy is considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. You know, when I was a boy, life wasn't all cows and plows. <laughs> we used to swing from a long rope hanging down from the peak of the roof inside the barn's giant haymow. Just the, hearing the word haymow remains a memory-producing generator mm-hmm. for me. We spent a lot of time up there. We grabbed that rope, and we'd jump from a stack of hay bales, and we'd yell like Tarzan, swinging <laughs> on a vine, and let go when it was safe to drop into a welcoming pile of loose hay. A city cousin, who had recently became a Tarzan in training, asked a reasonable question. I th- he said, when do you replace this rope? I answered thoughtfully, I said, whenever it breaks. <laughs> Remember, folks, Heartland is while we're driving past. Uh, thanks, thanks for listening, and thank you, Karen, as always. I, um, I just enjoy your company more every Tuesday. So I hope everyone has the very best day. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Al, before I let you go, one listener texted in today to ask this question. Why doesn't Al Bat change his name to Al Bird? Just wondering... Uh, there would be a charge. <laughs> well, there you go. Thanks, that Al. Sums it up pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye, bye, Al. Bye.